And welcome to the debut of Broadband. The show is part feature soul, part food for thought. It's a podcast that features personal wellness tips and public affairs information because you need to take care of yourself in order to take care of the world. On today's program, an introduction to the Women's Foundation of Oregon and Angelina Grimke, an American political activist, abolitionist, women's rights advocate. But first, I don't know about you, but it seems like I'm navigating some kind of different life transition each week. Now, whether it has to do with being a parent, something to do with my professional life, it's a creative project I'm working on, or some kind of relationship matter, life is full of what now kind of moments. Well, Lauren Ogery is a certified life coach, and she helps people look at life transitions in a positive way by clearing up the clutter in your mind, heart, or closet for that matter, so you can navigate changes in your life with clarity and joy. She joined me in the Kibu studios to talk about some tips in living transitions to the fullest. Lauren, welcome to Broadband. Oh, Denise, it's so exciting to be here. Thank you. So I am hoping that we could begin, I'm sure, one of many conversations for the future to come to talk about uh, wellness, about how to navigate life transitions in a very healthy, helpful way. And I'm not even expecting we'll get it all covered in the few (laughs) minutes that we have to talk today. Big topic. Uh, It's a huge topic. And so I thought it might be fun, actually to start a little bit about your own story because it brought you and it was major life transition and it was not easy breezy as I recall Um, and it has brought you to this great moment and then we'll leap off of that and talk a a little bit about brass tacks the wisdom that you'd like to impart on our listeners uh, to consider how's that sound that sounds great great So just full disclosure, Lauren and I have known each other for quite a few years now, and we met in Pennsylvania, and she was not a life coach um, back at that time. And so can you tell us or uh, share with us a little bit of your journey um, from that moment, if you will, to this major change in your life? From that moment, gosh, um, well, (laughs) I met Denise right after I was rear-ended by a semi, and that was pretty life-changing. Um, thankfully, I walked away, but um, learned an awful lot about having to take care of myself in new ways because of a year of rehab. Um, but I'd had this dream to move to Portland, Oregon after visiting here in the 90s, and that had been on my list for a long time. It was finally possible after the death of my father and some other things. Um, And getting here was hard. I moved here during the economic downturn. So that was another transition of quasi-employment and unemployment. I'm sure a lot of people here in Portland can relate to that. It's still happening. Um, And then at a certain point, um, I was not very happy and not very healthy. Um, I was at the highest weight I'd ever been in my life. And I had high blood pressure and I had some chest pain for the first time in my life. My dad died of complications of heart disease. So that was a big motivator. And I was also very unhappy with a relationship that I was in. And so I began a weight loss journey. And ultimately, I lost 100 pounds in a year. 
And that pretty much changed my life in one of the biggest ways that it's ever been changed. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I also decided to end my relationship. And during that time, I also found life coaching uh, and a wonderful training program through Dr. Martha Beck. And that, that was, I I don't even know how to describe it because my life has changed dramatically from those two things, those three things ending the relationship, the weight loss, and life coaching. And I'm now the happiest I think I've ever been in, in my life, the healthiest I've ever been. So why life coaching? I mean, you could have had that aha moment to be a neuroscientist. <laughs> that could have happened. Uh, I could totally see that. Oh, she's really that's hilarious. brilliant. But um, Sure. Um, well, my background is a um, is eclectic, but I do have a master's degree in counseling. And because of my quasi-employment and being midlife, I was like, what the heck am I going to do with the rest of my life? It's much harder to get a job now, as many of us know. And somehow life coaching had come in and out of my consciousness, but somehow I found her program. And I it just sparked something in me that said, this is the time. I have the confidence. You know, I'd lost the weight. Um, I was feeling better than I ever had. I knew that the life coaching industry was really growing rapidly, and there was a way to be my own boss, be able to work and and travel anywhere. Um, I've lived all over the country. Those are other transitions I've made moving from from region to region. Um, And it, it just presented a beautiful blend of all my background and the opportunity to have a secure future because the world of employment is rapidly changing. There's no security out there. So there's obviously no security in running your own business either. You have to hustle and work Mm -hmm. hard like in any job. But it all just felt so right. It was just like that click when you put a puzzle piece together and it's like, ah, that's it. Makes total sense. Now, your coaching practice has some key areas of focus, if you will. Um, And what are those areas? Well, I do assist people with weight loss, um, although I call it um, transforming pound by pound because every pound does matter. I also work a lot with people in transition. I work a lot with people in divorce, people switching careers, people looking for what matters to them. And you might say, that's a transition. It's like, well, yeah, if you've been unhappy and unfocused and doing things that haven't, you know, floated your boat um, and you realize life is too short, what the heck am I going to do? That's a big transition. Mm -hmm. And and there'll be a lot of resistance from people in your life. So how do you navigate a big change? Like, I want to change my career. I want to move to Bali and sell jewelry. You know, I mean, who knows? It could be anything. I, I could do that. You could. Well, I don't know I if I could live in that. Bali. I might live in Tuscany <laughs> Ooh, and make jewelry. I, yeah, yeah, I see you there. I could totally see myself see doing you. there. <laughs> so that's what I thought we would talk about. Not me moving to Tuscany, <laughs> um, but we could do that. But um, I don't think it would be as interesting to really talk about sort of the um, forest view, if you will, of um, navigating life transitions, transformation, and um, some of the things that you've discovered through your process of working with your clients and your own personal navigation of that. And is there is there a process? Is it very linear or not? Or yes, it could be both. It could be both. It could be neither. It really depends on the person and the goal and the vision, if you will. Um some people are very linear and they they want to plan. And of course, we know about plans and that we need to have more than one plan because life happens. Um, so a big part of, of life transitions is looking at resilience. And a big part of resilience is looking at self-care. Mm. 
And I really had to learn, relearn about self-care and relearn how to comfort myself without food, for example. Mm. And that could be anything. So for someone else, it might be alcohol. For someone else, it might be gambling. For someone else, it might be watching 100 hours of internet TV every day. Well, every week. Um, <laughs> although it might feel like 100 hours to people around them. But um, so having to face the fact that I hadn't taken very good care of myself, I really had to go to square one with mm -hmm. food, with movement, and I prefer that word to exercise, with how to comfort myself, which I think is huge for mm -hmm. us. Um, we tend to numb out, and that helps nothing. Well, doesn't our culture really, to a certain degree, it seems like extremes. Either it's all about self-absorbed self-care mm. and that, or don't even think about that at all. Um, because it's selfish. So there's obviously a middle road to doing that. I mean, how, how does a person, how would you recommend or suggest to someone to kind of get to that middle road moment? Well, I would actually encourage people to start putting things like self-care pieces into their calendar in small increments. And I know for parents, it's often like, oh, I can't. The kids come first. I've got to do that. Or think of the sandwich generation who are caring with, for elderly pa parents as well as mm -hmm. kids. Or think, well, think of anybody, really. I mean, it doesn't matter what your life situation is. We often don't think it's, it's worthy of our time. But it is. And you would be very surprised how starting with five minutes a day of deep breathing or 10 minutes a day of going for a walk at lunch instead of just sitting for the whole lunch hour or half hour. Um, so starting very small, very incrementally, and letting it build and realizing the energy you gain from the time spent feels like you have more time. And given our time-pressured world mm -hmm. and time-focused world, that's what I hear the most of. I don't have time to take care of myself. No, you have choices about what you do with your time. Mm -hmm. So let's think about that. Again, five minutes can make a huge difference. And I can speak to that personally. Um, for instance, meditation. I'm thinking, what, sit on my tush for an hour? Not talking <laughs> or thinking or, you know, mm -hmm. um, meditating? I don't think so. So I started with a five-minute mm -hmm. increment, and each week I build up, and now I'm up to about 20 minutes. That's awesome. So, um, but the point being is starting small, building upon that foundation, mm -hmm. taking the walks, you know, mm -hmm. uh, working full time, or even just whatever life you live to make that time um, is really critical and taking that baby step. So awareness, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then taking baby steps. Mm -hmm. And then what would be sort of a next leg in that process? Do you think? Well, um, in the process of self care, or in the process of transition, transition. Okay. Well, getting back to the idea of planning, um, it's very hard to make big life transitions without some big picture thinking. So that's where it's fun to, if you're a visual person, make a vision board or um, just get a great big piece of paper and take post-its and write down the pieces of your transition. And mm -hmm. Like if you're planning a cross-country move, there's many, many pieces to that. And some of that has to be linear, but some of that necessarily doesn't. Um, so starting with a big, the big picture and then breaking it down and working backwards mm -hmm. time-wise actually is one of the best things you can do. Because if I'm going to be in my new house on the East Coast, I have to do what? In, and 
that's where you write things down on post-its and then you can reorder them mm-hmm. in the in the order that makes sense. And then if life happens and the order doesn't work, you just have a new plan. Right. So 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 being flexible, being willing to really go up and down in life, and by that I mean go up in the balloon and do the big picture, thirty thousand foot view. Well, the plane. <laughs> That'd be quite a balloon. <laughs> um, and then come back to the ground sure. and do some groundwork and see what's working. And just be willing to course correct. Um, I was talking to a client today. I think the Challenger, you know, the spaceship mm-hmm. Challenger, it's mm-hmm. usually off course 97% of the time because it's constantly course correcting based on atmospheric conditions and, and et cetera, et cetera. It isn't like we set, they set the computer and they all go play ping pong, however you play ping pong in space. So we all have to course correct. So being flexible, being not being rigid, that will just cause more stress, which then gets you into more self-care time, which then takes away from planning. I mean, mm-hmm. it's all connected. I really actually like the idea of the post-it note. I'm a list maker. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, uh, that causes me or I feel defeated is like, oh, I just wrote that whole list and I have to move point four and seven and switch them out and I got to rewrite the list the heck with that but with the post-it notes Mm -hmm. you can actually just move it around a little bit and not have to worry about redoing um uh that that actual typed up list or what have you so I love that so let me so we have you know becoming aware doing some incremental self-care then also doing your planning now inevitably through that process negative nelly is going to make an appearance. And so one day I'm going to do a whole show on neuroplasticity and all Yay. that thought management and mm. all because I'm so fascinated by that. Mm. But um, could you speak briefly on how to embrace negative Nelly? Because we don't want to tell her to go to another town, right? So right. could you speak to, uh, sure. to that a little bit? There's a couple of things that just flew into my head. Of course, there's more than a couple, but yeah. I know we're time limited. So... We are programmed as humans to think negatively 80% of the time because that's how we survived to today. Because back in the day, we literally had our little lizard brains who was concerned about lack or attack. Do I have food? Do I have shelter? Am I safe? And that's how we still operate even though in today's society, mm-hmm. at least in American general society, we don't have to worry about lack or attack. The tigers. Generally, right. right. Um So just know that you will never eradicate negative thinking. We have to counteract it. So acknowledge, you know, don't beat yourself up for having negative thinking. Just say, oh, what's it trying to tell me? What what is that fear? Well, maybe I should think about that. Well, no, that's irrational. That's never going to happen. Talk back to it. Let it be. Don't try to tell it not to be there because fear will always be around. Now, that leads me to the other point that I love, which comes from Elizabeth Gilbert, which I know you all know from Eat, Pray, Love and her latest book, Big Magic, which I recommend to everyone, if you're creative or not. She, she talks about the creative process. But she has this great analogy or metaphor, if you will, is that you're driving a car through life. Fear is always going to be in the car with you. But you make fear sit in the back seat, and fear never gets to drive. So listen to fear and and have it be inform informative, have it be feedback, but don't let it drive the car. I love Elizabeth and I love the way she uses words mm-hmm. and metaphors like that. Mm-hmm. It really speaks to me. Mm-hmm. So that's a really great point about you're gonna have these feelings that might I'll just blanket statement 
blanket label as mm-hmm. negative, but they can be of use. Mm-hmm. And acknowledging, embracing, and then putting it in a place where you can use mm-hmm. it or not use it, depending mm-hmm. on, but it's not in the forefront of what you're trying to do. Right. Um, so what other kinds of uh, specific or suggested uh, support activities, um, what is needed to build that, that net, that safety net as you're going through um, a major life transition, whether it is relocation, um, the beginning or ending of a significant relationship, uh, professional changes, creative endeavors, whatever the case may be? Mm-hmm. Um, well... Assessment and awareness are critical all the way through. Um, if you are familiar with Julia Cameron and the morning pages from The Artist's Way, it's great to just do a, a brain dump and just let things come out and see what floats to the top for you from that because that's where fears come out. That's where aha moments come mm-hmm. from. That's where ideas come from. That's where problem solving comes from. So that might be something that really works for people. And it is a longhand thing. It's not a computer thing. It's a writing thing because there is a connection between us writing things with our hands that's different than typing things with our fingers. It's just a more kinesthetic process. It, we're more connected to it. And speaking of connection, that's another really important piece. When you are going through a big transition, you need a support system and and you need to regularly, routinely bounce ideas off of people, but you still get to pick. (laughs) Be careful with who you bounce ideas people Mm -hmm. or bounce ideas off of. You know, keep positive people in your life. Again, it's the same thing though. If if someone's negative, take it in and then decide if it fits for you or not Mm -hmm. and then let it go if it doesn't. But if we isolate during transition, oh my gosh, we, we can be, get such tunnel vision and we can lose perspective and it just doesn't feel good. Humans are wired for connection. If you know Brene Brown, you know, be vulnerable, share your fears and insecurities and frustrations. Just don't ruminate it in it forever and ever mm-hmm. and don't get stuck with people that like to ruminate in the negative forever mm-hmm. and ever. Find that, that balance. Um, that really, of course, all of this resonates with me. Lauren and I have had thousands of hours of discussion about this, <laughs> and I'm sure thousands of hours yet to come and always learn great stuff from you. Um, can you talk a little bit about, again, I want to put that in self-care, but celebrating your successes as you're going through that process? Yay, you read my mind. That's so critical. And that's something I really learned and was ingrained in me in in, um, life coaching, that every little thing that you accomplish isn't just a little thing. It it builds on your success, if you will. It builds on your progress. It builds on your self-confidence. And it's just joyful. We forget to be joyful in life because we're so progress-driven, we're so success-driven, we're so, for some people, security-driven. I mean, it just Mm -hmm. depends on where we're at in life. So taking a moment to, for a woman who loves to do her nails, to polish her nails as a celebration, or if somebody loves to shop, you know, go shop. If someone likes a nice cold adult beverage, go do that. If someone wants to celebrate something big with a massage, I mean, there's a million ways to celebrate. But it could also just be standing up at your desk and doing a three-minute happy dance (laughs) because that makes you feel good. Right. Or it could be two minutes of deep breathing. Like Mm -hmm. that's the reward for working so hard is I just need to relax. Or it might be taking a nap or it might be taking a walk or a trip. I mean, celebrate every step of the way. Like if you have that post-it system and you, or you have a to-do list and you check something off, 
what is it you're gonna how is it you're gonna celebrate i love those big check marks on my daily yeah, to do and that's planner. a celebration right there you know it's really interesting because we all navigate life in a variety of different ways and um I'm always very curious about how we all do that individually. And it's interesting, I've had conversations uh, with my women friends um, about celebration, celebrating success. And I think I, it really hit home for me. There's a great, one of my great goddesses is Marie Forleo. And I, I will put a link um, on the webpage for her as well as a bunch of other links um, so you can follow up on some of the stuff we're talking about today. But what, she interviewed someone about celebrating successes. And so, for example, if you're job seeking, um, granted, maybe the ultimate goal is securing your next big adventure, your next job. But a lot of people only see that as one thing and the only thing to really mm. focus on. But really getting up in the morning, planning, right, making that phone call, scoring that interview, nailing that interview, all of those different things that come up, meeting a new contact through that process are successes Absolutely. that really need to be celebrated. And so I urge people when I talk to them, they're like, well, I don't know if I got the job yet. Well, so what did you do? success, success, mm -hmm. celebrate, 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 yes. or if something magnificent has happened, a big goal, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> and it's like, um, I don't think that's going to um, jinx it saying, wow, you know, step, I hit step five out of step seven, and you can celebrate, right? Mm -hmm. Up to absolutely. that point. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think it might be Brene Brown, again, who talked about stealing our own joy. So celebrating incremental success, big or small, mostly small when you're talking incremental, is really critical. It just, it just builds us up. Even, you know, I like to study productivity. And even saying the word done after you finish a task mm -hmm. has a reinforcing effect. And that can be the one second celebration that you have time for yeah. to acknowledge the work you're doing. We all are out there working hard. I mean, there's really few lazy people that I'm aware of, mm -hmm. even people that, well, I won't go down that road with <laughs> politics and things like that <laughs> about the lazy the people. <laughs> because I just think some of the, the people that are lazy are some yeah. of the, the hardest working people yeah. we know. Yeah. And so anyway. So it's interesting, you know, the context as we're talking right now, we're going to have to wrap up in a few more moments. Mm -hmm. um, I told you it was going to go very quickly. Mm -hmm. But um, we're looking more at navigating um, goal pursuits or life transa uh, transitions or transformations that you're aware of. But of course, a lot of this stuff you can use if something blindsides you, like job loss Absolutely. or end of a relationship or... I don't know, those are two of the big one, or any major stuff that you don't see coming. Right. Um, you can use a lot of this awareness, mm -hmm. the self-care, mm -hmm. the planning, mm -hmm. and the celebration mm -hmm. of reaching those new goals. Um, so, I, you know, I think it gets really scary in this world mm -hmm. um, because it is constant change. And can you, in closing, maybe give our listeners an idea of when you're, you get afraid, and you're like, oh, am I on the right path? Mm -hmm. Or I didn't see that coming or whatever it is that kind of gets in your face. Uh, a little trick that you might use to help regain your centered feelings mm -hmm. in order to move forward? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I would say the, the greatest thing that I have learned to do is go to stillness. So 
uh, the calm state that we can create for ourselves when we are just spinning because, oh my God, I've had the hundredth interview. I've had, you know, whatever it may be, and I'm not feeling like I'm doing things right. And, and I've tried to do everything right. And I mean, all of us know that feeling. So getting yourself grounded by whatever means possible, if that's going to walk in the woods, if that's sitting at your desk with your eyes closed and doing deep breathing, anything to still your mind and stop that monkey mind from just spinning and spinning and spinning helps lower your blood pressure. It helps restore your body just to even take a five second break. Sometimes we'll start making you feel, okay, I can handle this. I can handle this. I can handle this. And soothing self-talk is another part of that. I'm okay. I mean, if I stay very present, I've got a lot of things on my mind, but in this moment, I am safe. And in this moment, I am healthy. And in this moment, I will be okay. And in this moment, I can make a new decision if I want. So stillness, calmness, deep breathing, slowing it all down, that's where your new answers will come from, or that's where the security will come from, is that, you know what, I will be okay. It's not easy, and it sucks. And I don't like that it sucks, but I will be okay. I will be okay. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you, Denise. That was Lauren Ogery, Certified Life Coach. You can learn more about her practice at www.laurenougiri.com. I'll also be posting some suggested self-care practices courtesy of Lauren whether you have just three minutes a day or a whole hour. So be sure to see the link on the KBU program page, searching under web only to get access to that. So now some food for thought. Uh, the Women's Foundation of Oregon is the product of a merger between two longtime foundations, the Women's Care Foundation and Portland Women's Foundation. Its mission is to focus the power of women's collective resources to improve the lives of women and girls throughout Oregon. Now, the group recently awarded several grants to some nonprofits outside of Portland and completed a, a statewide listening tour called Listen to Her. The intent is to gather data and comments uh, from women and girls from around the state to produce the first comprehensive report on the status of women and girls in Oregon in 20 years. So that's going to be pretty gosh darn fabulous when that's available. If you want to learn more about the foundation and the report, check out um, their website, womensfoundationoforegon.org, or you can click on the link found on the show page. In my final segment today, let's meet Angelina. No, not Jolie, but Grimke, both extraordinary activists of their lifetimes. Now, Angelina Grimke left quite a mark on efforts to end racial discrimination in the U.S. Now joining me now is Broadband's resident historian, Kathy Casey, to shed some light on this radical woman. Okay, so who is this Angelina Grimke? Well, Angelina Grimke was born in 1805. She was an abolitionist. She was an early proponent of women's rights. She is uh, probably one of the most famous women of the 19th century. She, along with her sister Sarah, uh, were very, very active in both the abolition movement and the women's rights movement. How did you discover her? 
I discovered Angelina Grimke in an American history class that I took at Portland State University about seven years ago, I guess. And um, she was mentioned, she was mentioned in a book, uh, and some of her writings were included in that book. And one of the uh, pieces of her writing that was included was uh, a series of letters that she wrote to Catherine Beecher, who was the sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was also very famous. She ran a girls' academy. And Catherine Beecher uh, wrote a series of public letters to Angelina Grimke telling her basically that she shouldn't be so involved in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. Women were were relegated to the domestic sphere. That's where they should be. And here Angelina Grimke was out speaking to what they called promiscuous groups, which was basically men and women. In the same room, In the same room, yes. And that was considered a promiscuous group, and she was advocating abolition, which was a very, very radical stance. We look at abolition today and think that these people were very, very brave and sort of in the mainstream, but they were really considered... Very, very outrageous. Um, outliers. Outliers, yeah. People thought that they were radical, and most people in the 19th century didn't care much about the plight of slavery, of the slaves. So what prompted her to take this up and, and really dedicate her life? Well, she and her sister Sarah uh, were born uh, the children of very wealthy South Carolinian um, slaveholders. Her father was a prominent lawyer in Charleston. Uh, Sarah, who was 12 years older than Angelina, became convinced very early on that slavery was just completely evil. And Sarah became Angelina's godmother. When Angelina was born, she just fell in love with this little baby. So she asked her parents if she could be her godmother, and she became really a surrogate mother. Um, Angelina was the 14th of 14 children. So I'm sure her mother, whom I have a certain amount of compassion for, was glad to have someone take on the duties of this 14th child. Uh, Sarah, early on, was very interested in law and loved to lay on her father's library and read his law books. And her father actually said if she'd been born a man, she probably would have been the best jurist in the Mm. United States. But, of course, being born a woman, and especially a Southern woman, that opportunity was not open to her. Uh, So she kind of threw herself into religion and into political activities. So um, back to Angelina, I mean, how long did she dedicate um, her life to doing all of these things? Because she also did some work around women's right to vote. And was this a lifetime? Well, Angelina, as a young woman, um, thought that slavery was sort of okay as if the slaves were treated, if the slaves were treated well. Um, but Sarah had great influence on her, and she, Angelina had several crises of faith. They, faith. they were both very, very devout Christians. Um, and Angelina ended up embracing Quakerism and moved to Philadelphia, where Sarah had moved. Um, she was also involved in Quakerism. And at about the age of 16 or 18, Angelina started to recognize that slavery was, was a great evil. And when she moved up north, she saw a real different kind of life. She saw, I mean, not that black people were free particularly, but they, she didn't see the evils of chattel slavery in the north. And she 
started reading The Liberator, which was published by the famous abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. And she ends up writing him a letter, which also was considered scandalous because young ladies did not write letters to men that they didn't know. And in this letter, she um, compliments Garrison on his work in abolition, and she thinks that it's, it's, uh, it's God's work, what he's doing. And he is so impressed with her letter that he ends up publishing it. And this actually is a turning point in her life. She is invited to speak to anti-slavery societies in the Northeast, and she and Sarah go on this big circuit, and initially they decide that they're going to be speaking only to women, but men start attending, and these, um, these sessions are very, very popular, and she... Uh, they're so popular, she st- starts getting quite famous or infamous. Um, and in 1838, she is invited to speak to the Massachusetts legislature, uh, a special committee of the Massachusetts legislature to talk about slavery. And around 1,000 men attend this lecture. She speaks for two days. Initially, she and Sarah were supposed to speak, but Sarah becomes ill. So Angelina does all the talking, and she says after the lecture, we abolition women are turning the world upside down. So out of her abolition work, she starts to see that women have a lot of, there are a lot of similarities between the way women are treated and the way slaves are treated. And Sarah also has done a lot of work and in, in investigation around uh, issues of, of the treatment of women, women as chattel. Once a woman married in the 19th century, she lost all of her property. She had no right. She had no right to vote. She had, if she did get a job, she was paid less, and very few jobs were open to her. She could become a teacher, possibly. If she was unmarried, um, she had to find a way to live maybe with a relative. Did either of these ladies ever get married? Angelina did marry a gentleman named Theodore Weld. And when they married, he was also an abolitionist and a political organizer. He was also a minister. Um, when they married, they decided not to have a minister officiate at the wedding. They wrote vows that eschewed the um, handing over of her property, um, and they felt that the wedding that God alone was enough, that sanction of God alone was to, enough to officiate and to sanction the marriage. They had a multiracial uh, ceremony. They had an African-American baker make the cake, and they used what was called free sugar, so they didn't buy sugar from the slave states. Um, they had three children, Um, Angelina, after her marriage, sort of retired from public life, but she stayed active in um, the women's movement. She and Sarah were great influences on Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and the the women who were leaders in, in that movement in the 1830s and 40s and on and on. So, Uh, She had great influence. She was a brilliant speaker, a brilliant writer. Sarah was also brilliant, but not as 
good a speaker in public. She was a little diffident, a little not a very strong speaker. But Angelina, Angelina, as a as a young girl, felt she had a special destiny that she needed to meet, and she was always looking for what that destiny was, and and she found it in her abolition work and her work in the women's movement. <laughs> Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Broadband. Be sure to take a peek at the links on the show page. Become a fan on Facebook. I got that link right there as well. If you want to get in touch, uh, you can send me an email at broadbandshow at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm going to close out today's show with a song from one of my local faves, Sarah Jackson Holman. Here's Do I Make It Look Easy off of her album, Cardiology. Enjoy. Make it look easy.